welcome to another episode of Crypto Study Hall, our final episode of the first season, episode 23. I'm your co-host, <laughs> Kirsten Wagner. And I'm your co-host, Kate. And it is the last episode, but most definitely not the least episode. We're joined today by Jim Angel. Uh, Jim, welcome on the podcast. Why, thank you for having me. And luminary <laughs> professor from Georgetown McDonough School of Business, who um, I believe you're shooting a video soon on financial literacy for high school students. Can you talk just first a bit about that with this name of our podcast being Study Hall? It seems appropriate that you're someone explaining you know, financial literacy to students and maybe talk about you know, what you're doing in that space. Well, at uh, Georgetown, we have an obligation to share our knowledge with the world. Uh, we do it through our research, through our writings, through the classes we teach. And not everybody has the privilege of coming to the hilltop and you know, taking a class on the Georgetown campus. So we're also developing a high school class that is essentially an investments class for high schoolers. It's uh, still in development stage or still recording, but uh, keep your eyes open. And sometime late this year, early next year, uh, uh, somebody you know who's a teenager and wants to learn a lot more about investments might want to sign up. How do you explain crypto to students? The uh, it depends that's on how a, much they that's already know. That's a big know. question. Yes. But <laughs> What a lot of people don't really understand about crypto is that crypto is fundamentally a wrapper. It is a way to record ownership. We often talk about distributed ledger technology, which is really cool because it provides a way to record the ownership of any kind of asset on a database that we call a blockchain. And a blockchain is really just a database. It's a log of all the transactions, but it has some really cool properties that make it secure and very useful. And blockchain databases are very useful in areas where you have a lot of people who want to access the same data, but they don't necessarily trust each other to get it right. So it allows you to create a public record of transactions, and you can do all kinds of other cool and groovy stuff with it. But... The key thing about so-called digital assets is they are what we call bearer assets. For example, you know, a physical dollar bill is a bearer asset. Anybody who holds that physical dollar is presumed to be the owner and they can spend it. Well, with a digital asset, anyone who has the private key to that asset can control that asset and can basically move it on a ledger from one address to another. So what this basically means is it can be transferred around the clock, around the world, 24-7. Now, some people look at all of cryptos as like, ooh, cryptos. But remember, the crypto is just the wrapper. The value of any particular crypto is going to be a function of what is, is wrapping. So in other words, if that crypto is representing a car title, it represents ownership of the car. Well, that means everybody can see who owns the car. So you have a nice public ledger. If that crypto represents a piece of artwork, like a so-called non-fungible token, then that token represents ownership of a piece of art. Now, that piece of art might be a masterpiece or it might be worthless. Now, who knows what the market will say about that piece of art? So that's what cryptos are. You know, they're basically a wrapper to demonstrate ownership. 
And it remains to be seen which of those things that are wrapped in a crypto wrapper are going to provide lasting value and which of them are going to be empty wrappers. You know, it's interesting you bring up the lasting feature. And I was just on the phone earlier today with someone from KPMG, and we were agreeing that it's not the crypto winter right now. It's the crypto sort of spring cleaning. And you're seeing the projects that really have this sort of intrinsic value to them, be it, you know, as a payment tool or, you know, NFTs or, you know, whatever it ends up. You're going to hopefully ideally sort of see a lot of these projects last out. but more so on the education piece, do you find that it is, you're leveraging different analogies and language when relating crypto to, you know, say like a 17 year old or even like a 25 year old as compared to, you know, when you're going to the Hill and you're meeting with, you know, 55 year olds or 75 year olds, um, do we have to leverage different language to make crypto click for different generations? Oh, absolutely that uh, you know, different people have different ways of learning things. And you know, the first rule of public speaking is know your audience. That uh, if somebody already has a strong background in traditional assets and you say digital bearer asset, they get it automatically. If somebody has no idea what a bearer asset is, whether it is a paper stock certificate or a digital bearer asset, then you got to explain what that is. So you always have to understand where your audience is coming from. And you have been talking to many audiences, young and more seasoned professionals. And what, I mean, even in 2014, I think you were talking about a digital dollar. What kind of reception did you receive then talking about this versus now? Crickets. In uh, 2014, I uh, basically said in Wired magazine that the U.S. Fed should issue the U.S. dollar in digital form, you know, because I immediately saw that, wow, this is an interesting technology. It is very useful. Our current payment system is slow, clunky, and obsolete. And having the U.S. dollar in digital form would allow it to be much more useful around the clock, around the world. And if you think about many of the so-called use cases for Bitcoin, you know, in the early days, the narrative was, wow, it's a great payment system. And it turns out it wasn't so great, but I view it as a great prototype. And indeed, with more advanced technologies, I think this is still an amazing way to improve our payment system. But national governments have a way of uh, squeezing aside private monies and this has been going on for a few thousand years. And there's no reason to expect that trend not to continue. So that's one of the reasons why I've been a, a bit skeptical about Bitcoin 1.0, as I call it. Because even though it's a brilliant prototype, um, it leaves a lot to be desired. You know, its energy usage is uh, appalling and a threat to the environment. You know, it's pushing up our uh, energy costs as we speak. And despite all the Fed from the Bitcoin maxis who want you to believe that uh, they're all made out of uh, rainbows and unicorns, uh, the reality is most Bitcoin mining is done with fossil fuels. And even if there are some renewables on the mix, the reality is the additional miner that goes on is burning pure fossil fuel. And yeah, we've seen what's happened to the price of fossil fuels, thanks to the Russians 
and the Ukraine war. And uh, guess what? You know, when you see your heating bills this winter, uh, you can thank the Bitcoin miners who are burning natural gas for uh, helping to push up your winter heating bills as well. Or when I go to fill up my car, although I just moved to New York like a week ago. So I guess that point is sort of uh, moot now that I don't have a car here. Um, but so on the CBDC piece, you know, we can all agree that there are just like wild inefficiencies and deficiencies in the way that the U.S. government moves money, operates with money, like just so much room for improvement. But I was reading this morning, something like two thirds of Americans or people polled don't really support a CBDC. Is this, you know, bad PR branding on the like, you know, CBDC maxi side? Is this because of privacy? Is this because of, you know, we see what China's doing with the digital one, um, you know, as one of the, you know, the early sort of promoters of the idea of a CBDC, sort of what do, what's your take on the, the lack of public reception right now? Well, I think a lot of people can't tell the difference between a CBDC and CBDs or cannabis oil. Most people really don't even understand what it is. So if you say, well, do you think we should uh, you know, you know, dribble cannabis oil on a dollar bill and smoke it? They'll probably, most people probably say no, but a few people would say, hey, man, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, but the key thing, there are a lot of different design elements in a CBDC. So they're not all the same. And if you look at what China's doing, they're using it as a tool to increase their authoritarian control over the money. Because if you know what people spend their money on, if you can basically, you know, push a button and turn off their wallet, wow, that's incredible power. That uh, So nobody wants something like China is developing, or I should say no freedom-loving person wants something like that. Now, the trick is going to be to design something that gives you the advantages of a digital currency with the right amount of privacy built in. And the um, you know, literally over 100 countries around the world are working on central bank digital currencies. And so we're going to see a variety of different uh, formats. And I think we're going to gravitate to the ones that are the most useful, both from a privacy perspective and from an efficient payment perspective. You are a professor of kind of the history of the markets, right? And have this, you've written so many papers on the history of the equities markets and have seen so many different cycles in the markets. What, what is your gut instinct telling you when you're watching, whether it's the crypto winter or crypto spring cleaning? You know, other guests have talked about this being the result of over leveraging. You know, where do you think we are in this cycle right now? Is this going to be um, kind of one big winner takes all or just more new companies coming in? Is it, it where are we in the cycle? And what other um, reference points in history might we look at as instructive of, of where we are? Well, there's a great French proverb, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So if you look at the history of financial markets, it's been a history of booms and busts. And especially when a new technology comes in, people get really excited. It creates a lot of new business opportunities. Some people get very rich, and a lot of people want to get rich along with them as well. So the fact that you have these bubbles occurs quite regularly whenever there is a major shift. 
whether it's a new technology development, a new political development, that uh, investors tend to get carried away. But I like what Warren Buffett says. He points out that in the short run, the market is a popularity contest. What is popular among investors? But in the long run, it is a weighing machine determining true value. The crypto assets, like any other assets that are going to survive for the long term, are the ones that provide lasting value for the people who own those assets. So the question I have about any crypto project is, okay, what will the owner of this token get to do with that token 10 years from now? So if suddenly I I find an old wallet 10 years from now and this token is in it, what what will I be doing with that? Um, And maybe it'll have some really nice use and go, oh, good, found money. Or maybe I'll look at it and laugh and go, ha, 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 what was I thinking? So that's the real question for any of the thousands of tokens out there. What is their long-term use case? You know, if it's just, oh, other people are going to pay more for it later, that is a pretty weak argument. If it's like, oh, it's going to have this particular application that people are going to pay for, or it represents ownership of something that will create value, that's different. I would be you know, remiss to not acknowledge the irony that I am literally at this very second at a crypto conference on Wall Street, like ultimately sort of like the the beacon of traditional finance. And, you know, more and more you see crypto learning from traditional finance and vice versa and sort of this like commingling of ideas and energies. But when you talk about crypto and you talk about which projects have lasting value a decade down the line, what can the crypto industry really glean from you know, mistakes made in equities markets and others where, you know, we don't always have to learn lessons the hard way. Sometimes you can just watch someone else's uh, mistakes made in the past and then like not repeat them. But, you know, what's the crypto market going to do with all the lessons learned? Oh, I think that's exactly the right question is what can we learn from other asset classes and other asset markets? And you know, there are really very good reasons why we overregulate our financial services industry the way we do, because otherwise, you know, the fraudsters come in and ruin it for everybody. So we need to have the appropriate protections in place against the various forms of fraud, whether it's issuer fraud, somebody selling a completely bogus token, uh, whether it is market manipulation with a pump and dump scheme, whether it is somebody who is. Uh, uh, you know, taking advantage of somebody else's naivete. Um, basically, we need to protect people from the bad people out there. And now, of course, this goes against the ethos of a lot of the early crypto pioneers who basically were trying to create a new financial system without any government involvement. But how do you prosecute fraudsters without having some kind of government involvement? And yeah. So, you know, the first thing we need to do is basically you know, get rid of the criminals. The uh, second thing we need to do is really worry about the level two solutions that we need to, uh, you know, one of the reasons we regulate financial institutions is to protect the solvency of the financial system. And I think the uh, latest uh, wildfire, I don't view it as winter, I view it as a wildfire in the markets. Um yeah, and we've seen you know, many dodgy business models basically going up in smoke. 
but the uh, it demonstrates the fact that uh, you know for a crypto world to succeed, it will develop traditional financial products. And that means it will need some form of regulation similar to what we've evolved in traditional finance. Now, should it be the same? No, because the technology is different and we need to be rethinking our regulation from the ground up. But there's always a temptation to try to regulate new technologies in old ways. So for example, if you think about ride sharing, Uber and Lyft do something very different from old taxi cabs, but they're similar in some ways. So some people say, oh, it's the same service. You should regulate it the same way. But there's no reason an Uber should be painted yellow or have a big medallion on top. That, uh, you know, there are, you know, so many differences. And we need to be rethinking how we protect consumers, how we protect the solvency of the economy how we promote economic growth in an efficient way rather than just try to blindly regulate everything the old way or at the other extreme, not regulate at all. And so we're seeing a bifurcation in the crypto world where legitimate players understand the need for legitimate regulation and are working to comply. And the rogues are doing their best not to comply. And the real question is, you know, how will the people react? Well, there are really good reasons why we, the people, demand regulation. We want to make sure money's not being stolen from our wallets. We want to make sure the economy's not going to collapse. And, you know, when things happen, we run to the government and say, do something. And then the government does something. Sometimes they get it right. They mean well, and sometimes not. I mean, I would love to see you on, there are going to be so many crypto hearings coming up on a congressional panel or something. I think it's really interesting insight you're sharing, given your extensive knowledge of the history of the markets. And I mean, I agree, there's a lot to be learned from the equities markets. It's it's a different type of market, but there are a lot of consumer protections that are um, important. But on the flip side, what, what, if anything, can the equities markets learn from crypto? I mean, it seems like there's such a trend towards DeFi right now. Oh, this is great. There's a real rethinking of financial markets going on. And where it's going to go is hard to see, but it's really um, you know, fascinating to watch the development. Now, you know, at the ground level, distributed ledger or crypto technology is really useful you know, in any situation where multiple people access the same data. So in the plumbing that takes place after the stock trade, that uh, usually when you talk about it, people's eyes glaze over and they, they remember their dentist is having a sale on root canals. But if you think about all the parties that are involved in a stock trade, you know, there's the buyer, there's the seller. You know, there's the broker for the buyer, the broker for the seller. You know, there's the stock exchange or the trading platform. You know, there are their banks who uh, might be holding the cash or the securities. Um, and then you have... Um, you may have other intermediaries, uh, somebody doing the paperwork for your broker. It's called a clearing broker. And then you have a settlement institution. So you have a lot of people involved in that trade. And having a single database that is updated and everybody goes, yep, that, that's the data, uh, can save a lot of money on those back office costs. So you know, the first applications are just that, you know, the not very... Uh, 
exciting stuff like uh, clearing and settling the stock trade after the fact. Uh, but you can also you know, re-engineer things so that you know, the entire stock record is on a le- public ledger to begin with. And, hmm, and then how do you do the trading? Or if you think about what we've seen, again, in the DeFi space with so-called automated market makers, hmm, you know, is that a more efficient way of trading stocks or is it? And, uh, you know, time will tell that, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, we have some very clever people working on some very clever products out there. And uh, if they can come up with a better mousetrap, eventually uh, the rest of the world should come around to it. So in the equities market, you know, you talk about these choke points or the different intermediaries. That has historically been where a lot of the regulation kind of gets targeted towards. Because it makes sense. It's like a very logical place to sort of focus in if you're the CFTC or Congress or whomever. Um, So I think DeFi poses a really interesting challenge for regulation where there are far fewer logical places to apply regulation. Um, what do we do? Like, I guess, yeah. like, for lack of a better word, like, what are your thoughts? Like, are the regulators going to be able to figure out how to accommodate that? Or is DeFi going to have to acquiesce to the legacy uh, modeling? That is a great question. Yeah. The real area is, where do the regulators have power? And it's basically at the entry and exit points of crypto land. So any onboarding that takes place from the traditional finance world, okay? So, you know, any of the exchanges that take in fiat and give you crypto, um, any merchants that accept crypto in payment, those are places where governments can impose their, uh, uh, you know, complete power to force compliance. When you look at all the intermediaries that are getting into the business, um, you know we see a number of traditional financial players coming in and offering services. Hmm. They all have a brick and mortar presence somewhere, and that is again where the um, governments will be able to exert their power. Um, now, for somebody who wants to do something, you know, totally in cyberspace, um, dealing with a completely anonymous counterparty in a system where nobody knows anything about what's going on, well, that's a system where basically there are no consumer protections either. And most people are going to want there to be some kind of protections going on. So, you know, I see the, you know, completely underground space shrinking relative to the space of people who understand that for the crypto world to succeed, it has to be appropriately regulated and provide the appropriate level of consumer protection. Maybe we'll need a metaverse regulator at some point, you know, (laughs) we'll have like an SEC in the metaverse as we totally move to the cloud. Dubai literally just introduced that. Dubai is like, they're doing really cool stuff, but yeah, they're pretty advanced. Oh yeah, they've got HQ Metaverse, um, which is you know, it's just fascinating. It's phenomenal. Anyways, well, indeed, I mean, there are many jurisdictions sure. that uh, understand that. Wow, we have a new technology here that uh, you know 
some people are going to uh, come up with some very valuable products here. So why not in our jurisdiction that uh, the more forward places are thinking, okay, you know, how can we, how can we attract the good businesses? Because, you know, there are humans that run those businesses and, uh, you know, that means jobs. And you can imagine a world in which earnings calls are in the metaverse where you as someone who owns a share can sit at a long conference table and, you know, raise your hand or go to the, you know, bell ringing virtually in the metaverse without having to go to New York. So all of that would deprive you, Jim, of the experience of going to even to like several dozen, I think, is it more than 50 stock exchanges now? So you would definitely want to do that in person instead of in the metaverse, I'd guess. Oh, definitely. Every stock exchange is different. My, my mission in life is to visit every stock exchange in the world. I've been to around 75 of them so far. And uh, the uh, every one is different. And I learned something at each one. Can we close it out with you previewing which stock exchanges you're planning on visiting next? You don't have to give us any dates. You know, we're not going to show up for an autograph, but, um, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm planning to do the Everest Base Camp Trek uh, coming up uh, this fall. And uh, that starts in Kathmandu in Nepal. And last time I checked, uh, the Nepal Stock Exchange is located there. So uh, I'm going to do my best to check it out while I'm there. Uh, if you have any uh, good connections there to introduce me, I'd, I'd appreciate that. Definitely. That sounds much more exerting than doing the metaverse version of Kathmandu. You know, <laughs> you'll actually be moving through space. Kate, do you have any last questions? I know he's like such a great source of information. No, I'm, I'm just going to say this is a call to action for our audience. You know, if anyone has any Kathmandu uh stock exchange connections, hit them up because unfortunately I have none. Um, but no, seriously, it's been really, really wonderful talking to you today. Um, and thank you for joining us for the final episode. Why, thank you. And uh, if anybody does uh, have any suggestions for me, uh, you can stalk me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is GUFINPROF, as in Georgetown University finance professor, uh, or just shortly, GUFINPROF, G-U-F-I-N-P-R-O-F. So feel Love free it. to follow me on Twitter. Do you have any other events coming up that we can follow you on? I know that Georgetown has its annual market structure conference in the next year. Are there any other events or um, things coming up in your path? Cool. The market structure conference coming up uh, this fall is going to be awesome. Um, I don't have the uh, info in front of me as to uh, how to sign up for it, but uh, the... Um, just uh, you know, keep your eyes open. There are always really great things going on. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us and have an amazing track in Kathmandu. Thank you thanks, for having me.